Hey, hey, guys, we're back here on the Living La Vida Low Carb Show with Jimmy Moore. Today's featured audio is Dr. Johnny Bowden. We'll be right back. Check out LifeSense products featuring the most potent C8 MCT oil and powder, BHB exogenous ketone salts with only natural sweeteners, and new to the world, C8 MCT oil for dogs. All of these products are scientifically formulated by Dr. Alvin Berger, who is the world-renowned lipid biochemist and nutritionist, as well as an expert in ketogenic fats. LifeSense has developed a custom easy-pour body for C8 MCT oil, and they've introduced more innovative, state-of-the-art nutritional products. Go to LifeSenseProducts.com to get your premium products all proudly made in the USA for the low-carb lifestyle. LifeSenseProducts.com Are you having issues with fatigue, the keto flu, or muscle cramping on your ketogenic diet? Then allow me to introduce you to Keto Vitals. They will solve all of these issues. Keto Vitals is a high-dose electrolyte in a pill specifically created for the unique needs of the ketogenic lifestyle. They use only the best ingredients. In fact, their form of magnesium was shown in a double-blind trial to improve insulin sensitivity. Keto Vitals is 100% guaranteed. If it doesn't work, they will refund your money. Head on over to KetoVitals.com or you can go on Amazon and get free two-day shipping for Amazon Prime members. Use the coupon code KETO1515 both on Amazon and at KetoVitals.com to get 15% off of your order. Keto Vitals. Living La Vida Low Carb, this show is changing lives. We talking about your diet, trying to get you feeling right. Cut up them avocados, fry some eggs, time to explore the longest running health podcast hosted by Jimmy Moore. Time to give up the crappy garbage, we're getting into ketosis. Every day is a new step to your goal, yeah, you're getting closer. Motivated and focused, don't stop, just go. Time to get inspiration from the Living La Vida Low Carb Show. Hey, the Living Low Carb Show. Today's featured audio is from the 2018 Low Carb Cruise. Visit lowcarbcruiseinfo.com to learn more about the 2019 Low Carb Cruise, leaving out on May the 31st, 2019 as the 12th annual Low Carb Cruise to the Bahamas. We also have another Keto 101 cruise sailing out September 28th, 2019. Get full details at lowcarbcruiseinfo.com. I really feel very honored that Jimmy asked me to do this first and to be the first speaker because I actually believe for a number of reasons. One is that the great cholesterol myth, what we're going to talk about, the fear of, you sure this is? All right. The fear of fat and cholesterol has actually informed most of what we've all lived with in the last 40 years. As you'll see in the, in the slides, it's really at the base of all of our fears of fat, all of our dietary guidelines, a lot of our health conditions. So it's really important to get this out of the way. And I'm thrilled to hear that so many people are new. So I'm guessing that there's a range of knowledge in this room about this stuff. Some of the research I'm going to point out and talk about is stuff that many of you know even better than I do. And some of it's going to be new to you. And many of you may have had health challenges and maybe are on this cruise because of those health challenges and things that you've wanted to 
deal with that have to do with this, and I want to give you some reassurance about that. And I want to show you what I think is really important to be looking at. Obviously, it's not cholesterol, as you'll see in the next hour. Uh, so I'm really thrilled to be able to start this off this way. Um, I think most of us, how many people have had this feeling? <laughs> A little bit, maybe? And this, of course, has also given us such wonderful foods as skim milk and margarine. So <clears throat> I like to start this talk with a story. And the story is about a woman who drops her keys <coughs> on the street at night. And she gets on the floor and she starts looking for the keys and she's walking around, she's looking keys and passerbys start to <coughs> come by and offer to help. And before long, there's like four people and they're all looking for the keys on the floor and nobody can find the keys. So after a while, one, one good Samaritan says to the woman, says, lady, we have covered every drop of area under the street lamp here. The keys aren't here. Are you sure you dropped them here? And she says, no, I dropped them over there. So he says, well, then why are we looking for them over here? And she says, because the light is so much better. <laughs> and I contend that we've been doing that with heart disease, obesity, and uh, diabetes. We've been looking for where it's easy to find answers, not for where the answers really are. <clears throat> my favorite, one of my favorite quotes about this is from Esther Perel, one of my girls, and she says, human beings have a tendency to look for the truth in places where it's easiest to search rather than the places where it's likely to be. And I contend that that's what we've done <clears throat> with cholesterol. Cholesterol is really easy to lower. Heart disease risk, not so much. They are not the same thing. So today's message, what we're going to be talking about today is number one, high cholesterol and heart disease are not identical. And yet high cholesterol has been used as a stand-in for heart disease in many, many studies, in many, many scare headlines from CNN, and we'll talk about those in a minute. The second thing is that cholesterol does not cause heart disease. It's not even a good predictor of it. How many people would be surprised to find out that cholesterol does not predict heart disease? Only one. Okay. <laughs> and fat doesn't cause heart disease. And the final message of, of today's talk is that we are treating this basically lab level of high cholesterol with powerful medications that are being terribly overprescribed and are far from the benign uh, aspirin that everybody thinks should be in the water supply. Okay. So I think it's always good to know where your information is coming from. So I want to tell you a little bit about my journey from a low-fat advocate to my position today. So this is, this is how I got here. So this is me. That's my office staff. I, I always like to introduce them. Yeah. I work in my, in my home and my office is upstairs and I just say to them, we're going to work. And they bound up the stairs and there they are. And so that's the office staff. Okay. And I started my career in, in health and fitness in 1990 as a personal trainer at Equinox Fitness Clubs the day they opened their first door. How many people know of Equinox? Okay, good. <clears throat> and of course, they went on to be a huge chain. And in my years there, I actually became the dean of the Equinox Fitness Training Institute, which is kind of the model for how we train personal trainers in a lot of gyms today. And one of the things that I and every other trainer in the world, and we have some people here, uh, who are going to be teaching in that area, who are trainers, and I think that they would probably back me up. The first lesson that we learn as personal trainers is that most people in America, or many people in America, looked like this, wanted to look like that, and wanted to get there that way. Ring true a little bit? 
Maybe? Okay. So we used what we had available. We used our version of the magic pill. We used the god-awful USDA food pyramid. We thought this was a healthy breakfast, right? After all, special K, a bagel, no fat, right? No bananas, cereal, juice, and of course, aerobics. And anybody who did not lose weight on this program, we thought, was either cheating or lying. Because it couldn't be that the advice was wrong. Remember this? Anybody? Yeah. Uh, this is, right, okay. So this is where we were back then. And I was very much an advocate of all this. And yet it wasn't working for many people. Now, I don't want to take anything away from the few people who lost weight on low-fat diets and calorie counting. It obviously has worked for some people. It's a difficult procedure. It's not really sustainable. And overall, the, the effects and results have not been good. But there have been some people for whom it's worked. This was not one of them. Many of our clients were not one of them. This is how I kind of felt about the low-fat diet at the time. You know, I've done this lecture sometimes and put that up and there's not a laugh. And I go, do I really have to explain the jokes? Seriously? So anyway, it's about 1991, 92. And this book comes out. How many people are familiar with Robert Act? Okay, good. Big surprise, right? So this was the third edition of the New Diet Revolution. It first came out in 1972. This was 1992, three editions later. It comes out, and it comes out at a time when there starts to be some research about ketogenic diets and low-carb diets. There wasn't a ton of it before this. And a lot of our clients, who were very unhappy with the results they were getting on low-fat and calorie counting, wanted to do this. And we thought they were crazy. We thought it was dangerous. This guy is telling people, in a, remember, try to put yourself back in the stop the insanity times. This guy's telling people to eat fat, bacon, and pork rinds. Look at this, he's crazy. The medical establishment hated this guy. He was a pariah. And we would say to our clients, you cannot do this, man. I mean, you might lose a few pounds, but you're going to get a heart attack. Your cholesterol's going mean, to be insane. You cannot do this. And they would do it anyway, and it created quite of a puzzlement, because they didn't die. Not only didn't they die, they would come back with a lot of very visible and measurable improvements. Their blood pressure would drop, their triglycerides would drop, their eyes would shine, they looked better, their abdominal fat was disappearing. And this produced what psychologists call cognitive dissonance which is two ideas that can't both be true. The Atkins diet kills you, and these people are getting healthier. Those two things can't be true. Something's got to be adjusted. That's what's called cognitive dissonance. And by the way, if you think doctors don't feel this, I had one person in the fourth edition of the book Jimmy mentioned, Living Low Carb, I, I told this story uh, of a woman who actually went on Atkins, and she went to her doctor a year later. And he says, Mrs. Jones, these results are remarkable. Your triglycerides are down to like under 100, and your HDL's gone up, and your blood pressure's low, and you look great, and you've lost. This is amazing. What did you do? And she says, well, doc, I went on the Atkins diet. He says, you can't do that. It'll kill you. <laughs> so I started looking at the research, and I promise you this will not be mind-numbing. I'm going to do the research part a little bit later, and I'm going to go over it fairly quickly, because you're going to hear a lot of it later in the, in the uh, seminars. But I arrived at this position 
which is blaming cholesterol for heart disease is much like blaming the firemen for the fire. And I went on Dr. Oz and said pretty much the same thing with cardiologist Stephen Sinatra. <clears throat> and I remember my quote from that particular appearance is when I said that trying to lower the risk of heart disease by lowering cholesterol is like trying to lower obesity by taking the lettuce off your Big Mac. I mean, it's the wrong target. So, that brings us to 2012. Do you know those movies and TV shows where it goes three days earlier, seven years late? So I want to go back, I want to stop the story at this point and go back 50 years earlier <clears throat> to a guy who gets blamed for a lot of our present situation. See, when I show this to regular people, they don't know who this is. Everybody here laughs, right? So you'll probably enjoy this next slide. <laughs> By the way, this is the only crowd in America where I don't have to explain that joke. The only one. So Ansel Keys had a theory. And he believed that fat and cholesterol caused heart disease. By the way, why are we so worried about heart disease then? Does anybody know? Because we had a president named Dwight Eisenhower who had a heart attack in office. And all of a sudden people were going, what is this thing? Because by the way, heart disease was not that prevalent in the first half of the 20th century. Cardiologists, as a profession, didn't really get invented until about the 1940s, 30s, 40s. Eric would know better than I do, but it's pretty, it was not something that people studied for hundreds of years. <clears throat> and Ansel Keys had some data to back his theory. And he said, look, the more fat people eat, the more heart disease they have. Here's six countries. You can see the relationship. It's right. They presented this data at the World Health Organization, and they kind of laughed at him. And he was, it's important to know his personality because we have people like this in politics and entertainment today. He was a very forceful guy. He didn't take autocorrect very well. He was, very, he was the kind of guy that would engage in a Twitter war. He was very, very sure about his ideas and he was a very forceful personality who was able to get his stuff accepted. So he's, there he is and he's getting laughed at which he did not like, by the World Health Organization. So he designs a study, he says, I'll show them. And he designs a study, which is probably the most quoted and influential nutritional study ever done. And it's called the Seven Countries. Oh, wait, whoa, excuse me. Let me show you about this. The so here's Ansel Key's data. And as you can see, you can draw a straight line through it. So it's pretty impressive, right? Here's the problem. At the time that he did this, there were 22 countries for which there was available data. Let's look at those. Now it looks a little bit harder to draw a straight line, doesn't it? You really have to really, really massage that data to try to get a straight line over here. There is no straight line. They picked the countries that proved his theory. And when he got laughed at, he said, I'll show them. And he designed a study called the Seven Country Study. And this is the one I was telling you about. It's the most influential and quoted study of all time. And it has pretty much informed the dietary guidelines and everything else we've been living with for the past 40 years. And guess what results he got? Can you imagine? And there's so many methodolo methodological problems with this study, you could drive a Mack truck through it. I mean, it, sometimes he, he would sample some of the populations during fasting and not mention that they were fat, or Greek Orthodox populations who were fasting, and he would use their measurements. I mean, it was a very loaded study, and he did get the results he wanted. Uh, Malcolm Kendrick, who's a physician in England, and wrote a book 
prior to our book, we were not the first people to call BS on cholesterol. But his book, and he says, you know, if Ansel had picked seven different countries, he could have shown that lower rates of heart disease are associated with higher rates of saturated fat intake. It kind of depends on the countries you pick. But his seven country study led to a hypothesis called the diet heart hypothesis, which basically says that saturated fat and cholesterol cause heart disease. In one version or another, that's what the hypothesis says. Now, Ansel Keys was not the only guy talking about this. This was his theory. He had a lot of people on board with it. But there was another theory, and it was this guy's theory. This is John Yutkin, who was a professor of nutrition in England and very, very respected, uh, Professor Emeritus. And his theory was quite different. He looked at the data on heart disease and nutrients, and he said, I don't think it's fat at all. I think it's sugar. These books are still available on eBay. They're very good, and they're still, they're still very current about sugar. Does anybody know them? Or? Yeah, OK. And he wrote a, a paper in The Lancet where he basically said, if you track nutrients in heart disease, sugar tracks better with this than fat ever did. Now, Ansel Keys did not like this. And I'm telling you, if there was Twitter today, it would be a Twitter war of the kind that we see every day in politics. I mean, he literally called Ansel Keys, uh, called John Yutkin names. I think he even insulted his mother. He said the guy has no ed education or credentials. He's a, you know, I mean, he did all the things you would expect. It was a very, very unpleasant war. But let's remember, there's no internet. There's no VCRs, right? So this is all kind of hidden from the general public. We don't really pay attention to nutritional debates going on, especially without the internet. So <clears throat> it's worth also noting that about two years ago, in JAMA, which is hardly a left-wing publication, that's the Journal of American Medical Association, uh, data came out showing that 50 years ago, the sugar industry actually supported and paid and sponsored scientists who were casting aspersions on fat. Why? Because it took the picture, it took the focus off of sugar. Industry does this all the time. So we now know this is true. Keep that in mind. I'm going to get to it in a minute. Do you still struggle trying to find a sweetener that fits your ketogenic lifestyle? Then let me introduce you to Swerve. Swerve tastes like sugar and there's no funky aftertaste that you get from all those other high intensity sweeteners. Swerve actually looks like sugar and you may not even realize it, but granular and particle size have a lot to do with how foods feel in the mouth. Because Swerve measures cup for cup just like sugar, it is super easy to use. Swerve has taken away the guesswork on how much to use in your recipes, you simply swap it one for one for sugar. Swerve is the perfect sweetener for baking and cooking, and unlike other sugar alternatives, Swerve browns and caramelizes just like sugar, which means creme brulee and meringues are even possible. The best part is Swerve has very little impact on blood sugar and insulin levels, making it perfect for a diabetic or anyone following a ketogenic lifestyle. Swerve is made from erythritol as well as oligosaccharides, which is a form of prebiotic fiber to help stimulate beneficial bacteria in the intestines. All the ingredients found in Swerve are from the United States and Europe, and Swerve has been in business for more than 16 years. Headquartered in the good old USA in New Orleans, everybody in keto is now using Swerve, and it's your turn too. Go to SwerveSweet.com to find a store near you, and it's also available on Amazon.com. Swerve, the ultimate sugar replacement. 
Okay, so into the foray, Nixon gets elected in 1968, and he decides one of his priorities is to do something about malnutrition in America. So he appoints a committee, and the committee is headed by George McGovern, progressive senator, headed the committee, and the committee actually lasted longer than Nixon's presidency. It went from 1968 to 1977, and their goal was to wipe out malnutrition in America and to come up with policies and recommendations. And they disbanded in 1977. But they said to themselves, God, we've been in business here like almost 10 years, and the, the United States population still doesn't know what to eat. Remember, we had no dietary guidelines. We should at least leave them. Let's leave them with something. Let's leave them with some guidelines. Well, what we've learned in the last 10 years of this committee. Problem is, can anybody guess what the problem would be? They're lawyers. They're a bunch of young, idealistic lawyers. What do they know about nutrition? They know nothing about nutrition, so they decide wisely to go to an expert. So they go to this guy. He's a Harvard professor. He's got to know what he's talking about, right? They don't really pay attention to the wars that are going on. This guy's firmly in the camp of Ansel Keys. And they go to him. Now, you remember this little article I mentioned earlier? Guess who was on the sugar industry's payroll? And guess what the McGovern Committee came up with? Low-fat diets, fat and cholesterol cause heart disease. The big bad cattlemen are the bad guys, which to some extent they may be. That's not the point. So this continues to rage on, this controversy. Again, behind the scenes. I mean, the VCR wasn't even invented then. So nobody had social media, nobody knew about it. There's just a fight going on in the background. And finally, the government decides to convene a consensus committee to straighten this out once and for all. So they get all these scientists, they put them in a room, and they say, this consensus committee, we want to report. That consensus was about as consensual as the US Congress just so you know. But they came out with a report. And the report was this. Lowering cholesterol prevents heart disease, low-fat diets are the way to go, high-carb diets, food pyramid, all of this stuff, born in the 1984 Consensus Committee statement. And the die was cast. That was the cover of Time magazine. Cholesterol was the bad guy. This was accepted by just about everybody. The, USDA, AMA, American Diabetes Association, they still accept it to this day. So basically what you had was two theories. Was it fat or was it sugar? And in the court of public opinion and in the court of the backroom science, the wrong theory won. It's happened before. When we had the VCR uh, wars, you know, between Blu-ray uh, Blu and uh, between Betamax and, and VCRs in the 80s, if anyone remembers that. They went, they went with the non-Betamax one because they had a better ground grain, but Betamax was a better technology. Ask any recording studio person in the world. They still use it. So it's very often that the wrong theory wins, and the wrong theory won then. And it, it, was, it did not go unnoticed. This guy was a major researcher at the Framingham study, which is one of the most influential studies of diet and heart disease ever done in America, and he called it the greatest scam ever perpetrated on the American public. So now we bring the two stories together. And I, what I think is that we need to answer, if we're going to evaluate this hypothesis, that cholesterol predicts and causes heart disease, that saturated fat is a terrible thing, we need to answer four questions. And the four questions are this. How am I doing on time, Jimmy? 
Good. Does cholesterol predict heart disease? Reasonable question, right? Because it, if it predicts heart disease, maybe we should be paying a lot of attention to it. Second question is, is fat related to heart disease? Does, does high fat diet cause heart disease? Third question is, are low carb diets bad? Are they harmful? Does this all sound like reasonable questions that we should be answering if we want to evaluate this? And the fourth is, are statin drugs really all they're cracked up to be? I have literally heard doctors with good credentials on talk shows saying it should be in the water supply. And the fifth question I'm going to throw in, if you'll indulge me, and this is simply personal, but I'm going to put it in anyway. I'm going to play the age card. And I'm going to tell you what I think we should be looking at. Obviously, you probably deduced I don't think it's cholesterol, but I'm going to tell you what I think it should be. And we'll get to that in a minute. So let's look at the first question. Does cholesterol predict heart disease? Now, the study I like to use, and I promise to be light on the research on this, <clears throat> but this one is one everybody can understand, and I love this one. This is a classic study. Any person who does research in America, if you mention the Leon Diet Heart Study, knows exactly what you're talking about. This is not an obscure study. And what they, this is the study that everybody, got everybody talking about the Mediterranean diet. So in the Leon Diet Heart Study, they took 605 people who were really sick. They were like an insurance underwriter's nightmare. They, they smoked. They ate whatever everybody thought was the worst diet of, in, in the world, lard, you know, stuff like that. They smoked. They were all sedentary. They were overweight. Many of them had previous heart disease. They were a mess. 605 people, mostly men, some women. And they randomized them to two groups. One was given information about the Mediterranean diet and was put on a Mediterranean high fat, that's 40% fat, which was way higher than what the American Heart Association was recommending. And the other got the Western diet advice, which is 30% of your calories from fat, no more than 7% of calories from saturated fat, all the usual stuff, high carbs, lots of grains, all that. So let's see what happened. Cardiac death on the Mediterranean diet, considerably lower. How about all-cause mortality? Everybody know what that is? That means dying from anything, whether it's heart disease or being hit by a bus. Just whatever reason. What happened here? Well, a little bit more. You'd expect it to be a little bit more because it's all-cause. What happened to whoops? This was so impressive that they actually stopped the study and just gave everybody instructions on the Mediterranean diet. And by the way, the lead author of this, Michel Longarel, I'm probably pronouncing his name wrong, one of the biggest cholesterol deniers in the world. I've spoken to him on the phone. He doesn't speak very good English. He only wrote one book in English, but he is very much, he would probably agree with 90% of what I'm saying today. So anyway, what everybody remembers about this study is that the Mediterranean diet trounced the American diet, the USDA diet. And that's a great thing to remember about it. But there's a little piece of data in here that's hidden that no one seems to talk about. And it's this. What do you think happened to these guys' cholesterol? They're now dying at a way smaller rate of heart disease. They're dying at a smaller rate from everything. This Mediterranean diet's absolutely kicking butt. So what do you think happened if they measured their cholesterol? What happened to it? Nothing happened to it. Nothing. They just stopped dying. I mean, that was, that was a side effect of it. But the cholesterol didn't budge. Now, I can go through some of the others. There's, there's really a thousand of them. The basic premise here with all the research I'm going to go through quickly is that half the people 
who are admitted to hospitals for cardiovascular disease have perfectly normal cholesterol. In fact, in some studies, it's as high as 75%. So I'm just going to go through this quick. You can all have my slides if you want, if you want to vet any of this research. But the bottom line is that um, cholesterol values in people treated for heart disease are all over the place, and, they do, and it does not predict heart disease. Uh, what does this one say? The majority of patients had serum cholesterol within the normal range. Okay, second question. Does fat cause heart disease? Well, when I first started looking at this, this was one of the first studies in this, in this era that I was talking about when the Atkins diet had, had first come out in 1992, the, the third edition, and we were starting to look at this research. This is one of the first. There's 50 million of them since then, and I'm sure everybody else who's presenting will show you a million of them, and if there's any doubt. But over and all, it basically showed that uh, when you looked at blood tests from people who are on ketogenic diets, which is, as you know, an extreme low-carb diet, it's really low-carb, um, their biomarkers were all quite healthy, if not better. Um, and then in 2010, this is, the, this is the study that kind of sounded the death knell for the saturated fat hypothesis. It was a meta-analysis. They looked at, I think, 350,000 patients, looked at the end result, not whether cholesterol went up, whether the eating of saturated fat led to more deaths. And they found that there was no evidence for concluding that dietary saturated fat was associated with increased cardiovascular disease. And then, then we had this four years later, the same thing. Current evidence doesn't support high consumption of polyunsaturated fats and low consumption of saturated fats. And, I, and that, of course, led to all of these. And I love this one because this guy basically looked at all of the health organizations in the world the American Heart Association and the English version of that and the Swedish version of that. And he basically said, whatever we're recommending is not backed by science. Okay, third hypothesis. Are low-carb diets harmful? How many, people how many people think Atkins was the first low-carb diet? Okay. No. Anybody want to guess what the first low-carb diet book was? Huh? In the 1920s? No, a little earlier. Banting, see, no one knows this stuff. Okay, so Oliver, uh, Oliver um, William Banting was an undertaker. I know you're noticing that's not really William Banting. Well, they didn't have the internet in 1850. So I grabbed a picture of what I think William Banting looked like. That's Oliver Hardy from Laurel and Hardy, but I'm, it's close enough for rock and roll. So you had this guy, he's 202 pounds and he's five foot two. A lot of weight. And his diet basically looked like this. They had no nutrition, and nobody knew anything. Everybody's guessing. Everybody's doing instincts. There's still bloodletting, you know, and things like that. They, they didn't know. But this is what he's eating. He's eating an Englishman's diet of toast and tea, pretty much. And the toast and tea continued throughout the day. You know the type of diet. And he goes to a doctor who, for some reason, had some intuition, and he put him on an all-meat diet. And he lost a ton of weight. I think he went from 202 to 152. This is his food diary. 140 grams of beef mutton. So you get the idea. Meat and fish, basically, some vegetables, maybe a crust of bread. And he lost all this weight, over 50 pounds, and he wrote, uh, there, I guess there is a picture of him, and that's Mr. Banting. Um, and the, the book was called, the, the pamphlet was called Letter on Corpulence, and it was widely circulated. It was the first bestseller in the low-carb field. And there have been dozens and dozens of examples of this, you know, throughout the 1920s and 30s and 40s. And, this whole high-carb thing is a... When they talk about low-carb as a fad diet, dude, 
We've been eating low carb for 2.4 million years. The human genus was first on this planet. We've been eating foods, I call them the Johnny Bowden Four Food Groups, food you could hunt, fish, gather, or pluck. It's really simple. That was our diet. Agriculture didn't get invented till 10,000 years ago, and on the time clock of human history, that's about a second. And McDonald's became a franchise in 1957. So you tell me which is the, low, which is the fad diet. And then all the studies that have come out looking at low-fat versus low-carb, almost all of them, they've been either the same or low-carb does better. Low-carb never does worse. And this is just the most recent study. It's called the Pure Study, and also the same findings. The low-carb did better. Um, this was an interesting study done a few years ago, the comparison of actin zone Ornish and, and a mid-American kind of you know American diet, association diet. Um, and what they found is nobody stuck to the diet. That was the first finding. Nobody at the end of the year was really sticking to what they had been given. But the more you aimed for Atkins, the better you did. Okay. And this is yet another one of those. And I would urge you to look at some of the movies on this stuff because it's even more impressive than the research. This is a wonderful movie about a town in Canada that lost, what, Eric, you were involved in this, what, 1,200 pounds, was it? The town that lost 1,200 pounds. This wonderful movie that just came out on Netflix, please see this. And anything that Tom has done, of course, Fathead and Fathead Kids movie, we're going to see tomorrow. So look at this, because it will give you a lot of comfort, I think. Um, which brings me to this documentary. And I, a little shameless plug, please come to my talk tomorrow night on this vegan uh, documentary, What the Health. And I want to tell you that if you already think you know all the mistakes they made, which I'm sure you do, this is not, my talk will not be about that. It'll be about how to think about nutrition facts, how to evaluate the stuff we hear, because there's a lot of facts in this thing. How do you answer them? How do you even hold them? What do you make of them? And that's what we're going to be talking about, how to think about nutrition. So finally, the last question we need to answer is, are statin drugs all that great? We went on, when we um, did the appearance on Dr. Oz and, and many others, we got a lot of pushback from the medical powers that be. We had one letter written that you know, said that we should be disbarred or whatever, you know, Steve should lose his medical license and I was a quack selling supplements and you know, how could Dr. Oz put this stuff on? And <clears throat> we were accused of being anti-statin. There was one article in Australia where it actually said, if they follow Bowden and Sinatra's advice, 31,000 people will die. So we're not anti-statin. We're anti-overprescription of statin. How many, it, um, let me just ask, how many people are on a statin drug? Okay, very few. Very few. So here's the deal with statins. A lot of things, statins are not this benevolent little thing like even an aspirin, which isn't completely benevolent for everybody, but it's certainly more benevolent. So a lot of things happen. It does lower cholesterol. It also gives you a lot of common side effects. And those side effects are much more common than people realize. Here's, here's, a, here's the Mayo Clinic, which is, again, not a left-wing. And here's muscle pain, liver damage, increased diabetes, neurological side effects, memory loss is a big one, and they left out erectile dysfunction which, sorry to say, is a big side effect of statin drugs. Now, everybody in this room, everybody in the world, would be willing to take a drug with risks if the benefit was enormous. If you had a cancer that was pretty much, we didn't have a cure for it, but there's this experimental drug, it has a lot of risks, but it may cure the cancer, you're all going to take it, I'm going to take it. 
But to take these risks with no real likelihood of benefit is a very different story. To give these drugs to 13-year-olds or to women in their 70s for whom no benefit has ever been shown is a big mistake. You're taking a lot of risks for something that really doesn't do very much. So let's see what it does do. This is, oh, this is an important study about the side effects because people sometimes ask me, well, if there are all these side effects, how come we don't know about them? I'll tell you why you don't know about them, because 65% of them aren't reported. And they aren't reported because the doctors don't believe the patients. And this study from Stanford University showed that. 65% are unreported. The doctors think it's something else. They've been so well marketed by the drug industries that they don't believe it's the statin drugs. I see it in my tennis playing friends all the time. They come in, they got muscle pain, they got this, and it, I, you know, could it be the drug you're taking? Oh, no, 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 the doctor says it's just arthritis, I'm getting old. I'm losing my memory, doc, a little bit. I can't remember anything ever since you gave me that Crestor. Don't worry, it's just a little bit of natural memory loss, you're getting old. So they don't report this stuff. And there's a lot of questions about how actually effective they are at preventing deaths. Lots. This is one study recently. Here's another headline recently. High cholesterol doesn't cause heart disease, so why are we treating them with statins? And while I'm on the subject, if anybody here has been prescribed the statin drug, I'm going to guess it's because they told you your LDL was high. Am I right? But you statin people, or if anyone who was suggested a statin drug, even if you refused it, they said, well, your HDL is low, your LDL is high. Do you like cookies? Jeff Free started Fat Snacks, S-N-A-X, in 2017 to make his keto lifestyle way more delicious. Fat Snacks cookies are soft-baked to perfection using coconut flour, butter, and almond flour. First time I tried these Fat Snacks cookies, oh my goodness, you guys, I fell in love. Plus, they're sugar-free, contain just 1 to 2 grams of net carbs, and have up to 9 grams of fat. Jeff and his team are proud to have become the top-selling keto-friendly cookie, all with just 1 to 2 grams of net carbs per serving. Fat Snacks flavors include chocolate chip, peanut butter, and lemony lemon, and they recommend you start with the variety pack on your first order. Head on over to fatsnacks.com jimmy, that's F-A-T-S-N-A-X.com jimmy, and use the coupon code LLVLC at checkout for 5% off of a single order or 10% off of your first subscription order. At Snacks Cookies. So, cholesterol, like in the 50s and 60s, you'd have these health fairs. Nobody here is young enough to remember that. I mean, old enough to remember that. But um, you'd have these health fairs, and they'd prick your blood, and they'd measure your cholesterol. And it was one number. It was the total cholesterol. There is nobody in America who prescribes on total cholesterol anymore. It's completely obsolete and outdated. Yes? True? Okay. So then around the 60s, they figure out Cholesterol actually travels in two different packages. And by the way, it's the same cholesterol. It's got two different vehicles that travel around the body. One is called, and they're called lipoproteins. So one is called HDL, high-density lipoprotein. The other is called LDL. And we decide, we get the brilliant idea that the HDL package, the LDL uh, package of, of lipoprotein, is the good guy, and the LDL is the bad guy. So then we start prescribing on this. And this was an improvement over total. This is now as obsolete as total was back in 1960. Because we now know 
that LDL comes in at least five different variations, LDL-A, LDL-B, I don't know what the other ones are, HDL comes in HDL2, 2A, 2B, so they're very, very different, and we now have a, a huge advance in the way we measure this because this actually can give us some interesting information because we now know that particles make way more difference than total amount. Both these people have 130 LDL. This guy's at risk, this guy isn't. And time and time and time and time again, Michelle will back me up on this. Every one of our friends comes to us and they say, oh, my doctor said my cholesterol is high. He wants to put me on medication. What should I do? And I said, did they measure it with the particle test? No, 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 it's, H it's my LDL. And I want to pull the little hair I have left out of my head because it's moronic. This is just, it's medical malpractice. This is the way we need to look at cholesterol. Anybody who's been prescribed a statin drug based on just their total LDL uh, it is... Bad idea. And, and it really comes to whether we're treating numbers or patients. That's really the bottom line. So, 1961, we have Ansel Keys and cholesterol on the cover of Time magazine. And 19, what is it? 2014, we've come full circle. Not in the general society as a whole, not in the medical profession as a whole, but We've certainly come a long way with that. So why is it taking so long, and why isn't the rest of the world on board with this? And the best answer I can give you is a quote from Upton Sinclair, the great writer, who says, it's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends upon his not understanding it. And let's remember that statin drugs are at 30, but lowering cholesterol is a $31 billion industry. Doesn't turn around real fast. Okay. I didn't think that one would get a laugh. I'm gonna, I'll have to keep that one in. So, cholesterol doesn't cause heart disease. It's not even a good predictor of it. Anybody remember Tim Russett, the beloved host of Meet the Press? Died on the treadmill in the NBC studios with his cholesterol quite intact. Thank you very much. <clears throat> the conventional wisdom on saturated fat is, at the very least, wrong or oversimplistic. And by the way, let me not go too far to the left here. There are saturated fats that have inflammatory properties. There, there, there's many, many different saturated fats. It's not, just, it's not just one monolithic group. But it's certainly been misunderstood and demonized. The demon in the diet is sugar, junk food, not fat. And statin drugs have multiple and serious side effects and are being wildly, wildly overprescribed. So I want to talk for a second about risk, because what we're really talking about here are risk factors, things that make it more or less likely that something bad will happen. They don't make it inevitable. You've got to get that. The risk factors are just percentages. They're just numbers. And I like to think of risk as a checking account. So your risk factors kind of withdraw from that balance that you have. But you can also add to that balance. There are things you can do, regardless of your genes, regardless of your risk factors, no matter how bad they are, there are things that you can do, and I'm going to talk about them in a minute, that can add money to the balance of your risk account. And those are the ones, I think, that we should be concentrating on. So for all of you 
who go to these seminars and hear a lot of things, and maybe some of it's even conflicting, or maybe some of it's stuff you agree with, and your head just starts to spin, and you think, how am I going to get my ketones here? How am I going to get my blood sugar here? What about this? What about... And you can easily get overwhelmed with that. So I want to give you what I think are basic things, that if we worry about those, we will be adding money to our risk-benefit checking account. And this book will be coming out next year. And Beth Trailer and I looked at a lot of different research on aging and a lot of different things about what actually predicts healthy aging. And healthy aging, obviously, by definition, means you're not getting a lot of big diseases that kill people. So that's what we all want. So we want to manage our risks. And I'm going to use myself as an example. I've actually never talked about this in public. I have written it, but not everybody reads, and not everybody reads things thoroughly. But <clears throat> about 25 years ago, I wrote this in... in the most effective natural cures on earth, and if you read it carefully, when you read the hepatitis C section, you would, read, you would have read that I said that I had a personal interest in this because 25 years ago I got a diagnosis of hepatitis C. Now, hepatitis C, has, it's not something you really want to put on your wish list, and if you read the statistics and the risk factors, it's pretty dismal. You know, 75% more chance of liver cancer and 65%. I look at that and I go, okay, 75%. What do I have to do to be in the 25% that doesn't get it? Because if it's 80% risk of something, that means 20% don't have that risk or don't actually succumb to that. So that's what I really want to talk to you about. What puts money in your risk-benefit account? And by the way, it's an N of 1, what scientists call an N of 1. I'm the only subject in the sample, but I've never had a symptom, I've never missed a day of work, I've never been tired, I've never had any, as far as, if I didn't have that diagnosis from a blood test, I would never know I had it. So these things have worked for me, and if you'll indulge me, I'll tell you what they are. And I believe these things dwarf anything else you can do. So by all means, work on those little details getting the ketones where you want them, getting blood sugar where you want it, uh, doing the right number of minutes of intermittent fat. They're all important, absolutely. But don't neglect these because these matter in terms of predicting longevity, predicting health, predicting well-being. These matter more than anything. And actually, there's research on most of them. I will tell you which ones are my opinion and which ones there is solid, overwhelming research for. Some of them are just conclusions I've come to on my own, and maybe the research isn't as strong as we would like, but I'll tell you which are which. First one is, eat real food. That sounds simple, but in this world, it's not that simple. And it probably dwarfs, in my personal opinion, it's more important than the percentage of protein, the percentage of fat, the amount of carbs, the number of grams, the number of this. It doesn't, it's all important. This dwarfs it. Just real food. Cook at home as much as possible. Use real ingredients, stuff that would spoil, stuff that your great-grandmother would recognize as food. Number two is to move. I used to say exercise, I changed my mind. I actually have a program called the Metabolic Factor that just came out online, and it's a, basically a keto program for 22 days, and there's no exercise in it except movement. So everyday movement, the time we spend walking to the rooms, and walking to our cars, and going up the stairs, and fidgeting, and going to the water cooler at work, that actually burns more calories than 30 minutes in the gym. Sitting eight hours a day is more of a risk factor than you can get rid of by exercising 30 minutes a day. 
So you don't want to sit. You want to move, and you want to move and find reasons to move. I'm very fidgety by nature, so I probably burn a lot of calories with that. But even fidgeting counts.、And、there's even a name for it. It's called NEAT, non-exercise-related thermogenesis, meaning the burning of calories from just fidgeting, from little stuff that isn't considered exercise. And our Paleolithic ancestors were meant to do this. They they travel about 20 miles a day in search of food, and and lodging or the stuff that they had to search for. The third one is one that I don't have as much research for as I like, but that makes sense to me, and that is to supplement intelligently. So I think everybody needs a different supplement program. No one thing works for everybody, but if you put a gun to my head, I'd say everybody in the world should be on fish oil, magnesium, vitamin D, and probiotics, and we work from there. Again, I wish there was stronger research to support that, but that's my opinion. In looking at the existing research, I think this is a good bet to do. There is enormous research on this one. Enormous, going back to the 70s. Stress makes every disease worse. It can bring on attacks of certain diseases. It makes recovery slower. High levels of stress hormones shrink an area of the brain called the hippocampus, which is involved in mem- memory and thinking. High levels of stress hormones put on belly fat. Anybody notice that? Back in the 90s, when we had We, I used to have a lot of women clients, executives in New York City at the Equinox, and they were in fantastic shape, and they had little pooches. Anybody familiar with that? And it was like they wouldn't go away. We, and we finally learned that's call, that they call that a stress fat. You can't really burn it off. It's cortisol telling your body to put put fat there for an emergency. So managing stress has just multiple, multiple, multiple benefits. Immune system and just everything. The list is endless. You got to find a way to do this, and I can tell you, for me personally, it's been very, very hard. I've never been. We, Michelle and I just started meditating in July, and it's been a wonder. And that's you know, at age seventy, I started that. But you can do it with deep breathing. You can do it sitting in a chair and taking deep breaths for five minutes and taking breaks out. But you got to do something to let this, to manage these hormones. It's a real physical effect. This is stress is not all on your head. This one we don't have as much research for. This is another one of my opinions, but I think everybody could use a little bit of a, a vacation from toxins once in a while, and you can do that many different ways. A lot of people use keto that way. They use it three or four times a year as a kind of metabolic reset. You can do it with raw foods. You can you can do it with medical foods like UltraClear. You can do it a lot of different ways, but probably a good idea to take a vacation, even a mental vacation from toxins. Don't watch the news before you go to sleep. You know, take take as much as you can take a little bit of time out, a little bit of me time in today's language. The better it will be. Sleep. Enormous amount of research on this. This is not something that's in doubt. During sleep, biochemicals are released, hormones are released, synaptic connections are kind of pruned. Lots of stuff happens during sleep. And You know, when you're getting up 15 times a night to pee, or you're checking your email on the way to the bathroom, as I've heard people have done, <laughs> it's not a good thing. So sleep is really, really vitally important. I wrote an article once in the old days on AOL. The one thing you can do to lose weight in your in bed, and of course, got more hits and more likes or whatever they had at the time than anything else I'd ever written. And the one thing you could do in bed to lose weight was sleep. Because it really does have a profound effect. Anybody ever done an all-nighter and noticed what your appetite is like the next day? You will eat. You will eat the basket that the bread comes in. 
And that's hormonally driven. I want to talk a little bit more about this one. We talk a lot in this community about our food not being adapted to our genetic inheritance. So like we talk about our hunter-gatherer ancestors and what they ate and how the food supply has changed and the genome has not caught up with it. Our genetics have not caught up with Lunchables when they're looking for wild boar. <laughs> and we talk a lot about how sleep has been disrupted from our natural rhythms. We have circadian rhythms. There's an expert here on circadian rhythms. I think it's, where's nurse? Okay, well, there's somebody who lectures on that. And there she is. And she will, I'm sure, if you grab her and talk to her, tell you how important those are. Why shift workers have the worst health outcomes of any group in America. Consistently. Horrible. So we talk a lot about how sleep has also been divorced from our natural rhythms of kind of going to sleep when the sun goes down and waking up when it comes up. But now we have electricity and computers. We've completely broken off that continuity. I would argue we've done the same thing with relationships. Human beings are hardwired to look at each other. They're hardwired to touch. They're hardwired to interact like this. They're not hardwired for Facebook. Facebook friends are not friends. They're people you can find out what they ate for lunch. Great. <laughs> and I would argue that to the extent that we can go back to this and actually form those relationships, this is the greatest predictor of health and longevity of any of the risk factors that we've looked at. You want the one that predicts health and longevity, it's relationships. Anybody ever read The Blue Zones? They don't eat the same way. Three of, one, one of those groups is vegetarian, the one in Loma London, the others are not. Some live by the sea, some don't. Some exercise one way, some don't. Here's what they, every one of them has in common. Strong social fabric. The number one predictor. Making contributions to other people, to other things. There's a great study I highly recommend reading by the psychologist Ellen Langner at Harvard. And she basically took a nursing home, an assisted living home, and she gave half the residents a plant to take care of. And by the way, it was a snake plant, which you can't kill, right? The ones your grandmother had, <laughs> you can put them in the garage, you can leave them there for six months, you don't water them, they, they, you cannot kill them. They don't require a lot of care. She gave half the people a snake plant to take care of. Those people had better blood lipids, less doctor visits, lower blood pressure, and better well-being scores by taking care of a plant. Esther Perel says the most powerful antidepressant in the world is doing for other people. And finally, number nine is to practice gratitude. And I, I would have said a week ago, there's really no research on this, I just believe it to be true, but there is research on it. And if you, I very highly recommend this book because it goes through the science of gratitude and the neuroscience of gratitude and how it is simply not compatible with many of the things that age us, many of the things that anger us, many of the things that shorten our lives and make us sick. So an attitude of gratitude is actually one of the biggest healing things that you can do, and one of the biggest ways you can add money into your risk-benefit bank account. Um, and finally, I would end with saying that ultimately, it comes down to what works for you. And what works for you will not work for you.
and what works for you will not work for me. And that's why when somebody said, I want to see what you eat, you don't want to see what I eat. I don't recommend what I eat. What I eat is what I figured out after 71 years works for me to keep my weight where it is and my health where it is. It's not going to work for you. I eat pizza. Yeah, confession. <laughs> my name is Johnny, I eat pizza. <laughs> but the point is that the individual assemblage of diet, exercise, relationships, community, all of this stuff is going to be very individual. Now that's a lot of work. It's much easier to follow a diet program. It's much easier to read a book. I've written them. I know. I know people love it. Um, step one, do this. This is harder to figure out what really works for you. But it's so much more empowering. And that's the message I really want to live, leave you with, which is find your own road, because that's the road that's going to give you the most satisfaction. And it's also going to be the road that's going to give you, personally, the most health. And I put this up for no other reason, gratuitously, because it makes me happy. Everybody loves my dogs. Thank you. Disc of Light.